Good morning, once again. Uh, we, this summer, are working, working our way through uh, the letter to the Galatians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in an area named Galatia. So I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Uh, if you do not know where Galatians is in the Bible, um, no worries. Um, if you want to use one of the pew Bibles, uh, that you should find in front of you. Um, the worship guide actually lists the page that our passage this morning is on. And we're going to be looking at, uh, the th- in the third chapter of Galatians, Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29. So here's what's going on in this letter. Paul is writing to this young church that has begun to stray. And the reason that it has begun to stray is that there is a group that has crept into the churches in Galatia, and they have started to uh, teach a message that is contrary to the message that the Apostle Paul taught the Galatians. What the Apostle Paul taught the Galatians was that a person is made right with God. A, A person comes into relationship with God based on their faith in how Jesus has performed. In other words, based on Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. This group, on the other hand, has come in, and they've started to say this, that to really be accepted by God, to really be a part of God's family, yes, you absolutely have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to basically become Jewish. You have to adopt Jewish customs. And that's why one of the lingering questions in the background of this letter is, on what basis are Gentiles, in other words, non-Jewish people, included in the family of God? Paul wants to say it's simply only based on their faith in Jesus. This other group is saying it's faith in Jesus, but also adopting and uh, performing Jewish customs. And so Paul writes to the church to call them away from the danger of that teaching, to convince them to not give into it, but to embrace the gospel of grace, God's undeserved favor to people through faith in Jesus. Let me go ahead and read the passage that we are going to take a look at this morning. Again, it's Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29. To give a human example... Brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, I forgot to mention that this section and um, the section that follows in this letter is really confusing. It's hard to make sense of just on your initial read, so I just want to Um, say that up front in case you're already thinking, I've totally lost the train of thought and don't know what's going on here. Hopefully we can make some sense of it together. Continuing on with verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, teach us from your word. Uh, Open the word to us, that we might be drawn into your story, Father, that we might embrace it more as our own story. And we pray that you would bring transformation uh, to our lives through your word. You promise to change people by the good news of the gospel. And so that's what each of us, whether we are in touch with it or not, it's what each of us longs for. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed. We want to be made new. So Holy Spirit, we look to you, and we anticipate the work that you will do during this time. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. When I think about some of the best teachers that I have ever had in my own personal experience... I think of teachers who do at least um, two things in their teaching. Now, I, I myself could come up with a longer list. You could come up with a longer list. But I'm just focusing in on these two particular things, probably because I see these two things at work in our passage this morning. But the first thing is, is that a good teacher gives examples, right? A good teacher gives examples, examples to connect to. So some uh, truth or principle is being taught, and maybe you can't exactly uh, grasp it. Maybe, it. maybe it seems a little bit abstract to you, but a good teacher helps flesh it out for you, helps you to make sense of it. So a good teacher, I, I, I think at least, gives examples. I think another thing that a good teacher does is that a good teacher anticipates questions and addresses them before you even have the opportunity to ask them. And so what I mean is that good teachers are so in touch with their students. They're so in touch with the the questions that may come uh, based on their knowledge of the students, but also based on the content. And so good teachers uh, raise these questions. They, they, They ask these questions and address them before Um, students are even able to voice the questions themselves. The reason that I'm thinking about this as we come to our text this morning is because I I think that in this portion of the letter, Paul is in full uh, teacher mode here. Paul is in full teacher mode. 
Now, Paul is a teacher throughout his letters, but it just strikes me in this section in particular that, that Paul has really moved into wanting to teach, to instruct, to flesh out the truth of what he's been talking about. And so we see him do these very things in the passage. We see him give examples. We see him anticipate and address questions uh, before the Galatians themselves even can voice them. And in Pete Paul's teaching in this section, uh, he seems to stress two things. Uh, well, it's one thing broken down into two parts. The one thing is he really seems to stress oneness and unity, oneness and unity. And he seems to break that theme up into two parts, one story and one family, one story and one family. So that's what I want to I look at under this kind of umbrella theme of oneness and unity, one story, one family. So let's begin with one story and try to track with Paul the teacher here. So right off the bat, Paul gives an example, right? So if that's one of the, the good, one of the things that a good teacher does, we see Paul doing this immediately in this section, beginning with verse 15. To give a human example is how he begins. Now, before we go into this example that he gives, let's talk about the larger context here and what's going on, just as a reminder, um, especially flowing out of the passage from last week. So last week's uh, passage section that we looked at, in that section, Paul really was all about pointing out how Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law. Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law so that we might receive this blessing promised to this guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham um, is uh, somebody that we meet very early on in the biblical story. We meet Abraham in the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible, and that book is Genesis. And the context there is that in, so in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we um, are brought into God's creation of the world. And what we learn in those chapters is that God intended something good and beautiful for his world. And we can refer to that as shalom. Shalom means peace, but it, it, it has much more of a fuller meaning than we tend to think about when we throw around, around the word peace. Because peace in the Bible, shalom, is not just simply the absence of conflict. It's the flourishing of life. It, it, it's life... Um, unfolding in the way that God intended, including a right and harmonious relationship with our creator, a right and harmonious relationship like within to ourselves, a right and harmonious relationship with others, and a right and harmonious relationship with the actual creation, the world around us. God intended shalom, fullness and flourishing of life. But in chapter three, that begins to fall apart because the first humans rebel against God's good intentions of shalom. They basically want to set themselves up as God in the story. The story of the world was not meant to function with humans in charge as God. And so everything begins to crumble. Disruption enters each of those harmonious relationships that I talked about. And we have a disaster on our hands. And from chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis... That basically is a story of this, uh, it's a downward spiral uh, of the world, 
of sin and its consequences creeping into every area of life. And so by the time you conclude chapter 11 of Genesis, the question that the reader is asking or should be asking is, what can be done? Is there a remedy? Is there a fix for this? Because we've already learned in that section of Genesis that human beings are unable to provide the fix. In Genesis chapter 12, that's where we meet this guy, Abraham. All that to get to this guy, Abraham. Um, We meet Abraham, and God calls Abraham to himself, and he calls Abraham to believe in what God is going to promise to him. And what God promises to Abraham, I'm paraphrasing here, is that I am going to provide the fix. I am going to do something about the curse that is currently oppressing the creation. And this fix is going to come in the form of a person. And it's ultimately going to come from your offspring, from your family line. And so in other words, what he tells Abraham is that from your family, from your people, I am actually going to reach the nations and bring healing to as far as the curse has extended. And so Paul here in Galatians 3 brings up this guy, Abraham. It's not the first time he's brought him up. He's he's already done so. But now we get into this example. Paul says to give a human example. um, And then he begins to talk about man-made covenants, covenants that humans make as as his uh, working example here. And he says that no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, covenant um, is a strange word for us, um, but in the Bible, covenant is central. And covenant really refers to um, God's special relationship with his people. He has entered into a covenant with his people. He's made promises to them, and he has called them to respond in faith by believing those promises. In Paul's day, the word covenant took on more of a meaning of a last testament or will. We're familiar, I I think, with the word will. And using Paul's working example here, we, we we could say it this way, that once a will has been ratified, and particularly after the person has passed away, that will cannot be changed or canceled. And so that's, that's, that's the example here, um, using the example of a, a binding will um, or testament between people. Where Paul is going with this is he wants to say this, that in the, sa- in the same way, the promises that God made to that guy Abraham way back there, way back here in the, in the biblical story, and to his offspring cannot be changed or canceled just because the law was introduced later in the story. All right, I'm sure it's still not quite clear. Let's, maybe it will never become quite clear. Uh, I'm not maybe the teacher that Paul is, but we're going to try our best. So let's move on to verse 16 and see if we can continue to get help here. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. This is an interesting argument here, because Paul takes a word that we um, obviously typically interpret as being plural, and he makes it singular. He, He makes it clear that he's not just simply referring to many people here. 
In this line of argumentation, he's referring to one person in particular. And he actually clarifies, doesn't he, who that person is? Christ. Christ is the offspring that Paul is talking about here. He's saying that only in Christ do those promised blessings um, made to Abraham that are extended not only now to those who are Jewish, but to um, all people, they come to us through Christ. Verse 17, Paul moves into talking about this law. Now, um, this word law uh, is definitely not the first time that we've encountered it uh, in this letter. We've been talking about this a lot. Um, But what Paul says is that the law came 430 years after God made these promises to Abraham. It It came 430 years after. And the law does not cancel that covenant. So here's how we can think about this. The covenant that God made with Abraham is foundational. It's a foundational covenant in the biblical story. Everything that comes after that in the biblical story is based on that, is found, founded in that, is to be interpreted in light of that, including the law. And we might think, this is the, maybe the anticipated question, that, okay, in the logic of, of the timeline of the story, because the law, God's co- a covenant that God made with a guy named Moses at Mount Sinai, became, because that came after the covenant made with Abraham, that one is now made void. But Paul is saying that that is not the case, that that covenant with Abraham is a foundational uh, binding covenant that is eternally true and in place. Verse 18, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, here's what Paul is getting at. His argument here, we should... um, examine it in light of the context of this letter. And and I've uh, reiterated again what the context of the letter is. Paul highlighting the gospel of grace, that it's not, okay, believe in Jesus and then perform the law. It's believe in Jesus and in how he has performed on your behalf. Trust, have faith in the promises that have been made to you in Christ. And so Paul is now wanting to help us understand the place of the law in the story, in in the the grand scheme of of things. Paul mentions, um, well, I want to mention this relationship between justification and righteousness. Um, We've talked about these words already in the series because they've come up before. But again, verse 18, for if the inheritance, that's the promise that God has made, those blessings that God promised to Abraham, if they come by the law, they're no longer a promise. It's no longer a promise because if it comes by the law, it means that we've actually secured them based on our performance, based on our ability to live up to the law and obey the law. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. It's, it, the, the blessings of this are not something that we secure by our performance. They are something that we receive by faith because of Jesus' performance. And justification and righteousness. Justification, as we've said, is um, God declaring us to be right, to be acceptable, to be okay with him 
How so? Not based on what we do, but what on Jesus has done. Righteousness is what, we, what is, becomes true of us as a result of justification. We've said it this way throughout the series. We, we all want to be justified in life. We all want to be told that you are good, that you're right, that you're okay, that you're accepted, all, you're, that you belong, all of these things. But we want that not just because we want to hear those words. We want that because of the status that it gives us. It actually gives us a sense of righteousness, doesn't it? It, it makes us feel secure and right in the world. Paul is making the argument, as he's been doing throughout the letter, that we do not attain righteousness. We cannot attain this status of, uh, of this sense of security and rightness based on following the law. It's actually a promise. In light of our inability to do that, God has made a promise in Christ that he would still make us right or righteous in another way. Earlier, um, Paul said, um, not in these verses here, but um, uh, another section earlier, he he made the the case that um, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If we could actually attain righteousness by being good enough, by performing in life, then Christ died for nothing. And it's a similar argument here, that if we can attain righteousness by following the law, then it makes God's promise to Abraham null and void. Why is that? Because God's promise to Abraham was based on faith. And going back to um, that story with Abraham, what does Abraham do when God gives him these promises? He takes a risk and he moves out to live his life in light of what God has promised. And soon after that, God says that his righteousness was counted to him by faith. It's through faith that we attain righteousness. That's the foundational covenant that God made with Abraham. So Paul is making the argument that the law does not undo the covenant made with Abraham. I know that this is still really confusing. Galatians, man, Paul really gets into it um, in this letter. In verse 19, Paul then raises a question. This is um, another way that I think that we see Paul being a really good teacher. He anticipates a question that the Galatians would probably want to ask, and a question that maybe is on your mind even right now. So then, what is the purpose of the law? Because it almost seems like, based on the argumentation so far, that the law is pointless, that the law is meaningless. What, Paul, is the point of the law? Paul says, all right, I know you probably have that question, so let me, let me try to answer that for you. It was added because of transgressions. Paul, I don't know that that makes it any more clear. What does that mean? What does it mean that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring, Christ, should come? It, you could read it this way. It was added because of sin. It was added because of our inability to meet God's standard. It was added because of our inability to bring our lives into alignment with God's design and vision for shalom in the world. 
I, I think that as he goes further, it, it begins to maybe clarify this and, and help us uh, a, a little bit more. But there's more confusion first. I have to say it. There's more confusion first. Verse, uh, tw- uh, the end of verse 19, he talks about how it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Um, Moses was the intermediary. Mount Sinai, Moses is uh, acting between God and the people. He brings the law to the people on God's behalf. That, I guess, we could make sense of. But then we get that line, um, but God is one. Uh, It's hard to figure out exactly what is meant by that. Um, I I think that it probably just refers to that, yes, God partnered with Moses in a way to bring the law to the people. God used Moses as the intermediary, but ultimately the law came from God himself, God who is one. Now, hopefully, we can begin to get a little bit more clarification. But in verse 21, Paul asks another question. He's anticipating the question, is the law contrary to the promises of God? And he has a bold answer for this. I I can imagine Paul, you know, writing that next line as soon as possible. Certainly not. Let me raise the question, but the answer is certainly not. That is not the case. So the law has some purpose. The law has some meaning in the grand scheme of things, in the context of the story. Look at verse 22. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Here's the purpose of the law. The law makes us aware of our sin. Because as we encounter the law, we encounter God's design for life. Um, And the law gets summarized um, oftentimes throughout Scripture as love of God and love of neighbor. So we could use those larger categories um, just for the sake of clarity. But law, the law points out to us our inability to really love God as we are expected to and to love others as we are expected to. And so it points out our inability. It, 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 it kind of rubs our, our noses in our sin, which we don't like. I, I think of um, the, the letter to the Romans that Paul wrote. And in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul basically provides us with an x-ray of humanity, an x-ray of the human race. And nobody is off the hook. We are all under sin. We are all guilty of not living in alignment with God's intentions for life. And so John Stott, who is uh, he's no longer living, but was a, a Bible commentator, he says, said this, the law exposed sin, provoked sin, and condemned sin. Now, the law is good. That's important for us to say. And this discussion could get more complex, and I'll try not to make it more complex, but you've heard me throughout the series talking about the biblical law, how we could think of there being three categories of the law. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil and ceremonial law were specific to Israel as a nation in a time of history in the Old Testament. The moral law which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, is law that is binding for all time. The law is ultimately good. The law is beautiful. The law is true. 
The law brings us in on God's design for life, his vision for shalom. So it's not that law is bad, it's, it's we are the problem. When we come to that law, that vision for shalom, as we've been saying, we quickly should be, if we're honest, um, confronted with our inability to live in alignment with shalom. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, there was a period of history until before, before Christ came in which people were under the supervision of the law. And the word there that is actually used means something like tutor. It's kind of fitting because we I've been talking about Paul being a really good teacher or or tutor uh, in this section of of Scripture. There's a sense in which the law functioned as a tutor for people by teaching them what is true of ourselves, that we have fallen from God's good intentions, that we are unable to meet God's standards. And of course, it should raise the question, well, if that's the case, then what is the remedy. Well, that's where until Christ came comes in to play. Now, Paul's been asking questions here, but let me ask a question now. What is the purpose of all of this? Not just simply the law, but I'm talking specifically about Paul's argument here, his ideas, his concepts, this theme. What, what is the purpose of all of this? What's the point of Paul bringing us into this really complex in some ways, hard to understand theological argument and discussion. What does it have to do with real life, practically speaking? I I, I think, as I said that, I remember um, a preaching professor that I had in seminary, and he would uh, always encourage us to imagine him standing in the back of the sanctuary uh, during the sermon, asking the question, so what? What does this actually mean for people? And so, I guess I'm following in his footsteps and asking for all of us, so what? What does this have to do with anything? Why is it important? Well, I think there are a couple things we could say. And they both point to the theme, coming back to the theme of oneness and unity, to the fact that the Bible is one story. The Bible is one story. And in that story, promise and law are mutually exclusive. As we think about things like salvation, how to be made right with God. And that's really what Paul is kind of teasing out here, that promise and law are mutually exclusive. You either, are, you either meet God's standard, um, come into relationship with him based on promise or through obeying the law. And if we are relying on obeying the law, we are in deep trouble. There's a crisis because we are unable to do that. And so it's one or the other. Paul's forcing the hand, so to speak. He's forcing the argument. It comes down to this. How do we get brought back into God's vision of shalom, his good intentions for creation? Is it through our ability to try to be really good and live in alignment with shalom, or is it based on our faith in the promise that God has made to provide one who would do that for us? The nature of the biblical storyline is consistent. 
We, we looked at this last week. Sometimes what happens is we talk like this. People in the Old Testament were saved, made right with God by following the law. And in the New Testament, people are made right with God through faith in Christ. But what the New Testament does for us, and it's actually all over the Old Testament as well, is that that has never been the case. That the storyline of Scripture is consistent from beginning to end. We are brought back home to relationship with God and brought back into His good purposes for us through faith in His promise. And who is the promise? The offspring, Christ. Let's now look at this last um, point under uh, unity and oneness, and that is one family. So Paul has taught us about one story. Now he wants to teach us about one family. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Let me ask you this. Why does Paul say sons of faith? Is this a reason for women to be offended? Are they being left out of what is talked about here? This is actually an important part. The reason I ask this is because it's an important part of Paul's argumentation here. And what he's, even though it might, it's not clear to us on the surface in our translations, what Paul is arguing is that both women and men have the rights of sons. What, what do I mean by that? Well, in ancient times, with sonship came the right of inheritance. And the Greek word sons is a legal term that is used in adoption and inheritance laws of first century Rome. In most uh, ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Son equaled legal heir. What Paul is arguing here is that we are all children. Women and men, through faith in Christ, we are all children, daughters and sons who have the right of inheritance, that we have the right to the blessings and benefits of God's promise to us uh, through faith in Christ. This actually, the way that Paul is doing this, was radical and revolutionary in his day. It, it, it would have been the case for many of the readers of the, uh, the original audience that they would have been taken back for this. This would have been new. But this is, this is where Paul's going here. So Paul refers to the, the status of both Christian men and women as those who have been adopted into God's family. They all enjoy the inheritance of God's children. In verse 27, he says, for as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is beautiful language. Because remember, going back to where Paul started this argument, the promises we could think of um, being made to one, to Christ. And so if we ultimately are going to get in on those promises, if we're going to receive those promises, if we're going to benefit from those promises, we have to know how to get in on Christ. We have to know how to be attached to him incorporated into him, connected to him. Because uh, in a strange sense for us, the promise was ultimately made to him. Why is that? Because all those who came before him were unable to get it done 
were unable to perform and lift the curse, but Jesus was able to do so in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so baptism paints this beautiful picture of incorporation into God's family, of being, it's it's a sign of our connection to Jesus, of our attachment to him. We, We say this all the time at City Church, that what the gospel brings about is that Everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We receive his record, his reputation through faith in him. And baptism is a beautiful picture of that. And Paul then talks about putting on Christ, that he is our security, that he is our righteousness. He is our, 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 our wisdom. He is the one who ultimately holds us together. That brings us to verse 28, where we really begin to Um, feel the power of Paul's argument about one family. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we hear that, and we might uh, interpret this wrongly. Paul is not saying that distinctions are eliminated. He's not saying that there is no longer such a thing as male and female, that um, as we, or even as we think culturally, as we bring our cultures into the life of the church, that they become erased and eliminated, and it's all like some other, like Christian culture, whatever that might be. I think that we've all seen examples of what that is, and I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be the defining uh, characteristic of the culture of the church. Um, So Paul's not saying that all distinctions are eliminated. Um, He's not saying that, um, what he is saying is that gender, culture, whatever status you may have in life, those are not the basis of your standing with God. Right standing with God is based on faith in Jesus, as we've been saying over and over again. Therefore, we all uh, share this cherished, beautiful status because of Jesus. This is really, really powerful. It has significant implications for the people of Jesus. Because what Paul is doing here is he's laying a foundation. He's laying a unique basis for unity that transcends gender, status, and culture. Women and men, poor and rich, people from various cultures and races can be one in the church together. This, too, actually takes us back to the very beginning of the story. God's promise that he made to Abraham, I already uh, referred to this earlier, the the benefits um, uh, of that promise were not just meant to be experienced and enjoyed by Israel. What did God tell Abraham from the people that would come from him? That they would be a blessing to all nations. From the beginning of the story to the end of the story, God's intention is to have a worldwide multinational family. And that family is defined by faith. It's defined by Jesus, the one who brings us together. Now, practically, we know that it is really hard to live out this unity together. It's really hard. 
Why is it really hard? Well, actually, that's like one of the functions of the law. The law points out our inability. And so even as we think about God's design, his intention for unity, we quickly have to realize, oh, like we struggle with this so much. We're so, we're so bad at this. And in large part, it has to do with the fact that we find it so difficult to be family with people who are unlike us, don't we? Um, I mean, this could apply even in our biological families. Could, could apply to our families at, at home. I know that sometimes I think, I just wish they were all like me. We would get along a lot better if my wife and daughters were just like me. Have you ever thought that? Uh, I'm getting really nervous here. You're giving me blank stares like you've never, okay, maybe I'll use another example. You know what I mean. I mean, I don't really want that. Um, but that's how I sometimes practically live, that if you would just get on my level, if you would get on my plane of thinking, we would have unity here. It, it, it's hard for us to be family to one another, and the more differences um, that get introduced, the more difficult it is for us to be family together, to us, for us to express unity. But a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, recognizes that despite our diverse backgrounds, there's a sense in which we're really all the same. And this is Paul's argument. We, we see both sides of this in this passage. On the one hand, none of us has it all together. We're all broken and in need of recovery. And for this reason, we celebrate Jesus. Jesus is the great unifier. He is the one who brings us together. He alone has the power to unite people from uh, a multiplicity of backgrounds. And so what the gospel does, the gospel's powerful. The, the gospel's this unique uh, power because the gospel creates a, a unifying identity in Jesus, which enables us to turn from the idolatries of self, uh, of tribe, uh, of race, whatever it is, of class, of status, you name it. The gospel gives us this unifying identity in Jesus that we can turn from those, that we can reject those. We no longer have to use those for the basis of, of trying to get right standing in life. You see how the God, this is practical, this is practical. And we've been making, ever since uh, chapter two, when Peter when Paul confronts Peter, if you weren't around for that, you can go back and look. We've been talking about how the gospel is this unique power and this unique remedy for things like classism and racism and sexism, whatever you want to, to, to think about. Because the gospel calls us to repent of whatever it is that we are trusting in outside of Jesus, to turn from it, to give up that idol, and to embrace Jesus by faith. And to begin to, with people who uh, don't, might not look like us, who are different from us, to live out the real unity in Christ. We actually get humbled in, in this. This is humbling. Like, we, we need to see that. This, this is humbling. Because the law points out our inability. The law points out our inability. Like, we cannot save ourselves. We are not better than other people based on uh, our status and anything that we would point to for our righteousness. It humbles us because our 
security, our righteousness is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. But this is what empowers us to actually embrace those who are different from us in the life of the church and to demonstrate a unity to the world. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is a beautiful conclusion to this section. If you are Christ, in other words, if you have trusted God's promise of Christ as your rescuer, then you are Abraham's offspring. This is profound. I don't want you to miss it. Remember what Paul did earlier. He made that offspring singular. He said it's ultimately one person, Christ. But now he's saying that if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, if you are in Christ, you get what is Christ's. You not only receive his record and reputation, you receive his inheritance. You receive everything that is good and true and beautiful because you are in him. In order to receive the blessing, we have to be attached to Jesus. We have to be connected to him. We have to be in him. How do we get connected to him? How do you get in him, so to speak? Through faith. Through allowing the law to tell you what is true and to embrace it as true, that you are unable But you are not left to yourself. You're not left to slavery of trying still to meet the demands of the law. There's good news. We can come to Christ. We can trust in what he has done for this new identity that transcends all of the false identities that we might try to create for ourselves. God is at work in this world to create a single family incorporated into Christ. And even in our doubts, even in our inability to see it at times, this is what God wants us to pursue. He wants us to pursue this. And this is the vision that, that, that is held before us in the biblical story. It's not a, a vision that we're, we think is cool, we want to create for ourselves. I said this a, a number of times recently. But our heart's desire, our vision for this particular church is that we might be made up of a church of people with diverse stories and backgrounds who because of Jesus and the unity that we have in him, we have something to demonstrate and to display to the world that is provocative, that is compelling, that invites people in and wants them to know how to get in on Jesus as well. Let's pray. Father, the gospel is so beautiful, it is so good, it is so true, but it's also hard. It's hard to embrace it in its fullness because it means that we have to accept what is true of ourselves, that we are unable to do it on our own. But I pray that we would find freedom in recognizing that and embracing it more. 
I pray that you would give us a deeper awareness and sense and belief of the identity that we have in Jesus as individuals, but then also collectively. And I pray that because of the power of the gospel, you would enable us to die to ourselves, to die to our preferences, to to die to the elevation of our own cultures as something that we try to derive righteousness and good standing from. I, I pray that you would give us a vision for how People in this city from diverse stories and backgrounds can be united in you, come together with our various cultures that tells the beautiful story that you are writing in this world, but does so in the context of unity. Because Jesus, you are the unifier. Show us this to be true in our church so that we might show our city this to be true in our shared life together. We pray in the unifier's name. Jesus, amen.